0: Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. My guest on today's show is Dan Shore, the founder of Vice Cream, an early stage company that is bringing back unapologetic indulgence to the ice cream industry. Dan has spent his career working with consumer brands, including Power Bar, Saucony, and PepsiCo. But after two unexpected life events, he turns his laser focus towards developing a brand of his own. Our conversation tracks Dan's career and walks through the many aspects of his startup story. His energy is infectious and his path has great parallels with investing and running any business. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, please complete the following task list for this week. Number one, write a review on iTunes. We're now up to 44 reviews or almost 1% of our 5,000 weekly listeners. Number two, visit Dan's website, eatvicecream.com and put a smile on your face watching how Dan spent most of his advertising budget. And three, get out to your local store and eat some vice cream. Please enjoy my conversation with Dan Shore. Dan, thanks for joining me, buddy. Hey, it's great seeing you, Ted. All right, Dan, so people who are listening don't even know what we're going to talk about. And we're going to say this again uh, later in the episode, but I want to know if someone wants to buy vice cream, where would they go today? So vice creams sold in pints and you'll find it in grocery
1: stores, um, right in the section with other super premium ice creams. And those grocery stores include all throughout new England, stop and shop star market, big Y roach brothers down in New York, New Jersey area, Shoprite, Key foods, Food Emporium, King Cullen, down in the Carolinas at Harris Teeter, great retail partner, and Publix now throughout Florida and the Southeast.
0: So nobody knows why we're saying that, but we're going to get into that very shortly. All right. So this is going to be a little bit different from a lot of the conversations I've had uh, with capital allocators and investors. You are an entrepreneur and we're going to walk through your story much in the same way people think about an investment but why don't why don't we just start with how did we get to be sitting at this table together <laughs>
1: But we've known each other a long time. You know, it's kind of interesting running and being an endurance athlete. It's a big part of my business story and a part of my life story. And it's kind of interesting. A lot of investors, immediate connection. I don't know if it's something where type A personalities are doing Ironmans and triathlons and things like that in the investor community as well. But our personal story goes back to we both ran together in high school. We ran many a New York marathon together. And I think when you see somebody, you know, blood, sweat, sweat, tears, and urine, you end up getting to be <laughs> connecting with them. So talking about investing, is easy today. But that's how we got to know each other. But running actually goes through my story. I was a uh, 417 miler way back when in high school and college. And You can't see me on air right now, but I have uh, a lot less hair. I should be more aerodynamic now. Then I still run, but not at that level by any means. I got these young kids at MIT I run with that don't know how fast I was. And as I'm going around the track, they slap me in the ass and they say, you're you're getting better every week, sir. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you (laughs) if you call me sir. And they're only running five minutes pace. But, you know, running was always a big part of who I was, a loneliness, a long distance runner a little bit. And the reason why the theme is relevant is when I graduated from college, I wanted to see how I could help running in America, thought I'd go work for USA Track and Field, the New York Marathon. And my first step into brand building, which is really what I consider myself to be, was I found a little company out in Berkeley, California that was called Power Bar and Power Bar Energy Bars were really a small company out of Berkeley founded by Brian Maxwell who was an incredible visionary and we invented essentially the bar category. Everything you see today at GNC or at Target in these 12 feet of energy bars really came from us building Power Bar as a brand. So I went out there to Berkeley we didn't know, our biggest asset was we didn't know what we were doing. That was our biggest asset. We didn't have an MBA in the building we actually funded it privately from what I know by ourselves until later years when we sold to Nestle. But it was the greatest experience in the world. And one of the things I learned there that I talk about a lot to students and other people is the thing I learned there as we were getting attacked by Mars and the larger conglomerates is you can never get outspent on things money can't buy. And I'll say that again, which is you can never get outspent by things money can't buy. Money can't buy. Can't buy, which is authenticity. You know, authenticity is so important to a brand, whether a brand is a person or whether the brand is a, a consumer product, Is it's very, very important. The thing, though, that's kind of interesting now is I teach at Boston College in the fall as a guest lecture. And the course used to be called how to build a brand, the rise of power bar. And it's now called how to kill a brand, the demise of power bar. And it's a lot, it's a lot more popular, but that was my mission. I was like, I was hired and $35,000 through $32,000 a year to go to Ironman, the New York marathon and help build this brand. And it was, you know, an incredible job that I still 20 years later talk about. It was something key where I was able to match my passion with business. And, and it was really a wonderful opportunity. And then fast forward I stayed in the same world by going to work for Saucony Running Shoes because I had always wanted to work for a footwear company. And I called these not a resume, but I called them philosophy formers. And my philosophy there is I learned what it was like to work for a family company. And it was a company that made purchase decisions differently. They were private. I don't think they necessarily, they were comfortable with 5 to 6 to 7% growth, but they weren't looking for skyrocket growth. And I was somebody who was a skyrocket growth guy. And then I ended up getting very lucky and very fortunate Worked harder both, but in 2000, PepsiCo hired me. Obviously, they'd hired me working on Gatorade, and they'd basically, and I think Pepsi people are incredibly brilliant. But I went through the interview process and I make fun of them, and they said, We spent $80 million on market research to realize people are not drinking carbonated soft drinks. And I was like, I could have told you that, like in the aisle of like Stop and Shop for 10 bucks. <laughs> you know, they were looking for natural foods, people, water. They saw the trend for better for you and healthier What year was that? This was 2000. So I went to to Pepsi and I worked on Gatorade, a kid's beverage there, Gatorade kid's beverage. And I worked on building the energy drink portfolio. Our program was called Beat the Bull. How do we take down Red Bull? Probably didn't necessarily do it the right way. But one of the things was that I was actually myself and a little brand manager, Kelly. The two of us were managing the energy drink portfolio and we drove $250 million in business in a couple years. And I always talk about this on my review, Pepsi of a zero to five and each point. Point is equivalent to sort of $10,000 raise and I drove $250 million in revenue and I got a two. <laughs> and, I got it, and I went to my boss I was like, and I won't even tell you the amount of profit, but it was a huge amount of profit at PepsiCo. The margins were huge. And he was like, you know, you missed Nicole's birthday party. You didn't, we all went to Race America's Cup boats in Newport. You weren't there. I was like, well, no wonder how I wasn't there. I was out selling product and moving cases. And he was the first guy to say, you know, you don't really get along in corporate America that well. You should really go out on your own. And it took me years. It's remarkable. I'm actually not only very good friends with this guy, but he's actually on our board currently, which is actually <laughs> ridiculous. And I make him buy me dinner every year. So Fast forward, uh, I left Pepsi, tried some different things in entertainment, went out to be an entrepreneur for my first time forming an agency, but I knew my heart wasn't in it. And I had two big, this is you know an overview now, but I had two big events happen in my life. One was a lot of events, but one was in 2013. I was at the finish line of the Boston Marathon bombing here in Boston. I had just left the finish line. I was in the airport and a bomb went off. Someone on my team, because they were a client of mine, was hurt. And what I learned about the bomb Bombing. I was stunned. Days later, we had still had tanks in front of our house here in Boston, and they were trying to obviously track down the fugitives. And after that whole ordeal was over, I, I closed the office, went to Iceland, and, and went to Europe with my wife for a while. And I really decided that I was going to live life with no regrets. And I went to her and said, "Look, I, you know, you have to support us. I'm going to do this food thing. I don't know what it is." And she said, "I want to support you for two reasons. One is I'm tired of hearing you talk about it, and." <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) The the second thing is she goes, if you haven't noticed, I haven't been to a grocery store with you in like two years and you move around Pepsi on the shelves and put Coke at the bottom. You haven't been there in six years and you move power bars and move Cliff bars. You throw out in the garbage. You haven't been there in 12 years. So I didn't know exactly what I was going to start. And this part of the story was that I thought I'd start chips or beverages. And I went into a trade show three years ago, and I was looking at chips, looking at beverages, and I came to the ice cream aisle. Now, as you know, I had paid for part of college, my room and board, by running a good humor truck in Westchester County, New York. It was the greatest job on earth. At 11 a.m., we left every day, came back at midnight. It's why I'm a night owl. Girls talked to me for the first time. We had the greatest <laughs> time, Mark Everly and I, had the greatest time, and I came to the ice cream aisle. And all I saw was sugar-free, dairy-free, gluten-free, and I said, where did real ice cream go? You know, what happened to indulgence? This category is supposed to be about indulgence. And we'll talk a little bit more about how we got to Vice Cream, but I came back and the original name of the brand was Downer Dan's Happiness Ice Cream. And the original thought process was, you know, your boyfriend breaks up with you or cheats on you, you throw his stuff out the window, and our first flavor is called Chuck His Stuffed Chocolate. So it's,
0: just, it's really positive branding, good message. Yeah, somebody should me, know, have a Boston have company called Life is. Is good. Somebody said this is basically life is bad. Yeah, that's right. And
1: I was like, but that's when you dig into ice cream. You also dig into ice cream. It's magical. I learned from the good humor truck that, you know, you ring the bells, yeah. and it's a magical experience that ice cream can bring to people. So I went to Ice Cream University, and I'll get into a lot of this later, but I went to Ice Cream
0: University at Penn State. So it's called The Short Course. Before we get into that whole research process, other than looking at an aisle and saying, hey, this is ridiculous, I see the trends moving the wrong way, was there anything else that sort of... We Terminate did, in your head To yeah, figure out not, What the brand We did some research Afterward But I, there's something
1: that's a phrase Actually like New York Magazine uses it Which is like I do believe in Sort of the backlash To the backlash And saw a while ago A couple of things That have come true One was Saw indulgence Coming back Initially a couple Years ago You know I'm a Combination of a gut Marketer but also data And saw things like Confections on the rise Now dark chocolate Was partly due to Health and wellness But I saw Confections on the rise Right now And I think we're In the right place Place at the right time, the commodity that's going through the roof on the commodity markets is butter, uh, if it's, you want to call it a market. So butter is through the roof. So you know there's things that are pointing to indulgence and people treating themselves for this healthy lifestyle. And I think we're in the right spot with ice cream as a whole. There are some low-fat ice creams, or they're not really ice creams, that are doing very well in the marketplace right now. But also the second thing was that you had $1.2 billion in sales between Ben and & Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs and they dominate everything sometimes everything that scared people away from Frozen were things that interest me. So some people say in the Frozen aisle, you've got deep pockets. It's true. Unilever and Nestle are deep pockets. But they also have command, each of them, an entire door. And an entire door, is they have 40 flavors each of them on shelf. Arguably, there is nowhere else in the supermarket that one brand, not even Coke, not even Pepsi, water, chips, Frito Lay, no one has 40 different flavors and dominates a door. And part of the insight, we didn't even date on this, was that they were what we call in consumer package goods over-skewed. And we saw the rise of regional ice cream brands, and we saw that they had just too many flavors on the shelf. And no one was really challenging the paradigm. So those were some of the initial insights that we saw as an opportunity. And then the last one is, you know, something I learned from Power Bars, it's always about the consumer. So we did some consumer research, and realized the consumer, no pound intended, had an appetite for a new brand. So, that's a little bit top line of how we got here. And then, as you know, a big part of the brand story, the brand at that time was still called Downer Dan's. But shortly after, I was two pieces to it. Long overview, but two pieces to it. One was... I was walking through the Houston airport on the way back from the Sundance Film Festival, and I was sitting there, and I was like, Downer dance isn't right. These images we drew up were really kind of cutesy, too close to Ben and Jerry's. And I was like, what is, what is ice cream? What is ice cream? And I was like, it's a vice. And I Googled on my phone and was like, vice cream can't be available. And it took two years to, to get the intellectual property.
0: Why is that? Did somebody have the name Vice Cream?
1: You know, we could talk around it, but it was, I think in general, when you look at things in life, you can end up saying sometimes you want to bet on being successful and sort of cutting deals early. It was, I think we got rejected by the Patent and Trademark Office the first time just because they said, this is too obvious. We don't have any research. Anyone owns it, but someone has to own it. Or you can't own the word Vice. You can't own the word Cream. We're like, we want both of them. So it was two years and my my lawyer, Aaron Silverstein, I should give a big shout out to him because he tells me, that you know, I don't appreciate his work, but we do appreciate his work every day. <laughs> he then Iron Calls going, God, you don't ever listen to me. You're always on the go. Do you ever listen to me? So it's usually, it's like fed up with me so, all the time. So
0: you had the name and the interest in the idea. At what point? So you start doing research. Yes. You mentioned some consumer brand research. What was the research you did to decide, hey, I'm going to spend my life pursuing? The next stage of my life pursuing this opportunity.
1: Wow, you make it sound really daunting, like I should've probably put more thought (laughs) against it than I actually did. Oh my god. I'm gonna pursue the rest of my life. You know a lot of things are driven by passion, but hopefully there's enough of an insight there that you just don't fall in love with your own idea. But we saw some research, the out we could share, is that the millennial audience, the, you know, 18 to 30s that everybody wants, really had seen haagen as your older brand, you know, as 60 plus. And the real surprise was that people in that age group, the millennials, saw Ben & Jerry's as sort of a counterculture hippie tie-dye brand. And that's fine for Bernie Sanders, but not necessarily for food. So we We saw this insight we saw this insight that there was, a, that the younger audience was looking for a brand that spoke to them. So that was, that was a key part of the research that we did to be able to get where we are. And then to kind of finish off the story, we launched at Vice Cream 14 months ago at 20 Boston stores, 20 Boston Roach Brothers stores were the first people to take a chance on us um, with these overly indulgent flavors like breakfast in bed, maple ice cream, maple syrup, French toast, and pecans, higher grounds, everything's a vice that's our nod to Canada. There, there are a few other vice names that uh, uh, I think Very you popular share. right now is Toffee Wife, like Trophy Wife, which uh, maybe some of you listeners may have. <laughs> it's Toffee Ice, peanut butter ice cream, peanut butter dough, Toffee, Ripple, and Heath Bar pieces. But and, then, and then there's there's an orange-flavored there one, is, isn't there? There is. We're going to have uh, ShopRite down in the Jersey area is going to be carrying it. Roach Brothers carries it here, but it's called the Orange à Trois. It is vanilla with orange creamsicle wrapped around three kinds of chocolate, milk, dark, and white, and it's our sleeper flavor. But a key part part of our DNA to kind of wrap up the overview was that I had been this runner to go back to where I started on this story. I've been completely healthy. I've run 37 half marathons. I've run five or six New York marathons and, and San Francisco marathons and done half Ironmans. And in uh, April, I'm wearing a bracelet on my hand, April 1st, April Fool's 2014. I was not feeling well and I went to the doctor's office and they ushered me out saying just before this saying, you're the healthiest guy we know. You're the healthiest guy we know. And I went to a new doctor here in Boston. I never saw this doctor before, and the doctor has never called again. And I went in, and she said, I told her all my symptoms. I've got nausea. And she said, oh, you're just a manic entrepreneur. I'm itching. It's eczema. I was about to leave that day, and I went back in, and I said, I'm sorry to be an ass, but why can't you test me? And 24 hours later, I got bad news where everybody gets bad news. I was at Target picking up toilet paper and I was in, in toothpaste or something I, and I was sitting in the parking lot and they called and they gave those three words and no one likes to hear. Uh, we found something. And it was cancer. They said it was 95% cancer, 5% of chance of infection. I needed to get a biopsy right away. But it was very aggressive. I had diffused large B-cell lymphoma. And they had said if it had not been treated, uh, they they later told me I had 12 weeks to live. So how the hell is this afternoon with the ice cream? Well, um, I shut down the business for a couple months and started up again. Uh, A couple months later, I went to my oncologist, Ann LaCase, who's incredible, and said, uh, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and said, hey, I ran this weekend. And can I, I threw up afterward, but, you know, can I go out? And I had gone through chemotherapy, uh, six rounds of chemotherapy over seven months. And she said, go back to work. So when we came back to work to kind of wrap this all up on the overview, our tagline was live life, dig in. That's what it always was about is life short, dig into ice cream. You know, eat kale, go to soul cycle when it comes to ice cream, eat ice cream. And it took on more of a mantra, more of a movement. And now our hashtag is EFIC, life short, eat fucking ice cream. So um, I know like. <laughs> Life's short. I know life's short. But we the thing I'm most proud of is our larger P, or larger purpose, is that we do provide product and cash, so to speak, monetary uh, donations, and even just smiles to cancer patients to help them get through their journey. We do things. We just raised close to a million dollars with other brands for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute um, in New York at the Scooper Bowl and in Boston as well. So that is a, a so very busy two years. So let's take, let's take a
0: very brief break for a short advertisement. And we'll repeat this at the beginning because no one's going to know what we're talking about, but today... Where can people listening find Vice Cream?
1: Uh, you can find Vice Cream all throughout New England at Stop and Shop, Roach Brothers, Big Y, and Star Market. Down in New York, you can find it at Key Foods and Food Emporium. You can find it from uh, Maryland all the way down to Florida at Harris Teeter locations. Uh, you can find it at Publix, which ranges all throughout the Southeast and obviously in Florida. You'll find it at ShopRite in New Jersey come fall. And we're going to be moving out to the Midwest, Plum Markets in Chicago and Michigan and soon to be many other locations out there and independents that we may or may not know about that are out there in the marketplace. And I don't want to forget about King Cullen out on the East End of Long Island and the Hamptons. And I am probably, this is like why the Academy Awards, you don't thank anyone (laughs) because you always forget everyone. But I want to thank all of our other retailers out there that are supporting us at Vice Cream.
0: So unlike A lot of the discussions I've had with my friends are you're talking about buying a stock or investing in a manager and you do all your homework. You come up with the idea, you give them the money, and then you're done. You come up with the idea, you're ready to roll, and then you're just starting. So what was the process from, okay, we have a passion, we have an idea, we've done our homework, we know there's a market niche, we have a great concept, I know how to build a brand – then what? And not to be
1: so, you know, big picture or emotional, but I think that one of the things that kind of ties this whole picture together and I've talked to entrepreneurs or anyone out there is I believe one of the most motivating factors in life is fear. And I didn't start this because I was afraid. I don't know what to do. I don't know, even with my experience, I'm not sure what to do this and that. I kid around that it took me, I set myself back a year or two because I didn't know how to do a UPC code, which actually takes like one second on the computer. So there was those initial days, which weren't long ago, that fear was setting me back a little bit. One of the big things was I actually hooked up with somebody in my uh, Penn State Ice Cream University class, and Nadine it had been a dean DeLuca in New York, and she is sort of the wizard behind the flavors. And when we had knocked off those initial flavors, um, we had some advisors, I had some consultants, we knocked off the initial flavors and got the initial pint out of the kitchen, it made it real. And even when things were, we worked on, I went to a packaging agency and we developed packaging, and the initial packaging we ran just some comps of, just five. But it became more real when you had a product in a white pint, and you had a black package, it became more real as a whole. It's interesting because I haven't really, you know, we're so focused on the future that we just came through our year anniversary and took a pause to actually look back and, and kind of remind ourselves of the fun stories and remind ourselves of things that happened. But March of when we were working on packaging 18 months ago seems like another century. So I think step one was in some ways, step one was just to take a step. Was to produce some product to actually get product that was like re- that you could taste that made it real. Step two is get the package
0: So I start. Step one, you mentioned twice, we didn't get a chance to talk about it Ice Cream University.
1: Yes. What is Ice Cream University? Well, the official name is actually there's the short course and the long course, but Penn State University has been running an ice cream course that, God, it probably goes more than 50 years. But Dr. Robert Roberts was there, and I believe his dad was there as a professor, and there's about People come from 30 different countries in January or more, 130 people, and it's sold out every year. I think it's sold out already. And then they also run a weekend course, which is just sort of for very uh, elementary course around ice cream. And I went, and I was the worst student there, literally. I came <laughs> and thought I'd do margins, business, copac operations, procurement, maybe how to buy ingredients. And it was hardcore food science, freezing temperatures, and all this other stuff. One third of the room were food scientists. And they were had been, like, this was their profession, masters and so forth from all the major ice cream companies the middle group of the audience was plant managers third shift guys sanitation one third were entrepreneurs but of those entrepreneurs most of them wanted to open up a scoop shop or an ice cream store and there was a few crazy of us that wanted to start our own brand and we we're locked in i remember it was like like one degree freezing cold in state college for a week and there were like exams at night and their finals and i like bought tickets to the hockey game or basketball game i was gonna go drinking i thought was gonna be fun and they were like they were like we'll give you your money back to go home and eventually did go back uh, about two years later but it was the best thing i got out of it was was meeting nadine but also other contacts at other ice cream companies flavor houses and things like that so as i mentioned with the good humor truck i've always been an ice cream fan and i'm a big fan i'm a business person i believe in a higher calling of the power of ice cream to make people smile unlike any other food beats the hell out of pizza but um you know I am not a food scientist per se, although I kind of kid around with everyone here. I don't really kid around. I know our ice cream better than anyone. So I don't know how to make it. I don't know how to compose it as well as other people on the team. I don't know necessarily how to develop it or how to co-pack it, but I taste our ice cream sometimes on the line. I'm like, there's something wrong. There's not enough this in it. And I know our ice cream. I can taste it very well. They say Ben Cohen had no taste buds at Ben & Jerry's and he couldn't really taste anything and so forth. I'm sort of the opposite. can tell good ice cream right away
0: all right so you finish up ice cream university um, now you understand how to freeze ice cream correct. you gotta raise some money correct and I remember you sitting in my house probably a little over a year ago telling me stories about the difference between delivering ice cream to someone having them taste it in person and maybe shipping it and what happens tell a little bit about some of the foibles that come from trying to show people your product
1: it's funny, like when, you know, just kind of like sitting down with you for 30 seconds in preparation, um, a lot of what I've shared with you today is part of our brand story and my story. And I've shared this story regularly. I kid around a CEO or I call myself CIO, chief ice cream officer. All I do is get paid to tell the same story. I haven't talked about the money part before, which obviously your audience is probably the most relevant and they may hopefully enjoy the first part. So one thing I say and keeping my sense of humor is I quickly learned not to sample any venture capital firms or any angel investors before. Or one uh, don't sample anyone after nine a.m. because people, in particular, is a guy in New York who uh, is a famous entrepreneur, maybe running some kind of jet company in New York right now. You can figure it out. And he had me come into his office, and he brought twenty-two people in there at one o'clock. And basically, I just fed the office. They had never returned another phone call again <laughs> as an investor. Oh, this is the greatest ice cream ever! God, come in here, Tony. Come in here, Jimmy. Come in here, Lisa. Come in here and taste this. And all I did, I wanted, Oh, we love this. We want to talk about investing? I never called again. So like you know, we basically, I basically walked. Around New York City, and I said initially I was literally selling ice to Eskimos. It was January, I was freezing, taking ice cream to people. And then I quickly learned that I was just basically the snack truck. And then, you know, (laughs) it got, but then there really was no way to learn that we went to see some investors, a very peculiar gentleman, and maybe he's a listener and a subscriber, and he ate the ice cream very slowly. And we met, and he finished the entire pint, which is a really good sign if you're pitching an investor. We went to see him three times and he never came into the deal. So it was, it is as hard to raise money as advertised. And I think in the first round, we really sold on the dream. We raised two rounds of capital. And selling on the dream was this is a lot about the entrepreneur. So people took a bet on me, which I really, really appreciate. The second was the brand and the concept and really what we outlined is the data and the opportunity in the marketplace and you know that that round arguably was easier in some ways in the second round. You think the second round would be easier because you have proof of concept. The first round, we just sold on product samples, in some cases, just pieces of paper. But the second round was a little bit harder because it became more about data and it became more about numbers. And while our numbers were good, we got into, you know, the first round wasn't a question about valuation because there was nothing to put a valuation on. The second round, it was a little bit more about numbers and what we could command as valuation. But, you know, initially, raising money was as hard as advertised. It was very very difficult. I think the climate was a little different. I think the climate 2 years ago, call it, investors sort of saw themselves at a higher level at least in the food business than brands and were like, "Oh, I can pick from anything." There's a lot of investors that have come into the food space now, a lot. And food brands don't have a pick but I would say it's definitely evened out there's a lot of people with a successful food consumer brand there's people that are at least not throwing money at you but there's a lot of people that have interest in speaking with you knowing about you on the radar I also think that the bar has dropped a little bit in terms of annual sales so before maybe two three years ago you'd have a, a small fund that would say we're not touching you unless you're under f- unless you're five million or more and I think that bar is moving down now to a million or more because I don't think they want to cut themselves off, and I think the second thing, not unlike Uber, is people want to be in early. You know, people want to be the guy that got in or the woman that got in early, the people that got in early. So they've lowered that bar, and they're looking for more deal flow. And then, how did you go about building your team? You know, they say is <laughs> I had I had uh, sorry to give you another story, but I was drinking. I believe one of my number one philosophies: everything begins in a bar. So you meet a spouse in a bar, you meet investors in a bar. I was in a bar and this is not necessarily somebody I met in a bar, but I was in a bar in New York recently and it's a young guy there and he was talking about his company and, you know, I think pros and cons of a CEO. I'm not sure how highly he thought of a CEO. And he said, you know what? The only thing this guy's good at is he's really good at sales and and he's really good at sales and he's really good at hiring people. But otherwise he's useless. And I was kind of like, you know, a CEO, those are actually pretty good things to be good at. So... Our team came together in a couple of different ways. Nadine came in through, you know, Ice Cream University and meeting her, and and with her came Renee, who is who works with her closely. And then I was looking for somebody to help execute our first Scooper Bowl, a marquee event here in Boston that you pay fifteen dollars for all you can eat ice cream and it benefits Dana Farber Cancer Center. Thirty thousand people come to try out ice cream. That's where I got a, a stack of resumes in from people who wanted this job in marketing. And again, going. Back to the theme, one of the people in the in the uh, stack of resumes, Molly had been a triathlete, and she was on my triathlon team. Although I'd never met her before, and it made her stick out. And we were sort of in a little bit of a urgency time crunch to hire someone. Um, so got lucky that she's been very very good. And then another member of our team, Cam, was at Gordon Seafood and handling supply chain and logistics, and. You know, great find also for us there, um, you know, through LinkedIn and through some connections, managed to find her. And I was actually recruiting a couple of her colleagues as well. And I think the interesting thing about Cam is kind of something to get into and a mind sharing is, Our product is incredibly difficult to make. There's a lot of things that are proprietary about our product that I can go into and can't go into, but our base is made unlike anyone else's. It is the best tasting ice cream you'll ever have. The base is very complicated, and we've we've also found a way to have a lot of inclusions, and they're mixed evenly across the pint. Well, we didn't know, and I didn't know how hard it was to make our product. When we first ran at the first plant that we ran in for product for consumption by consumers, retail product, a case of ice cream is packaged one pint up, one pint down, one pint up, one pint down, eight in a case. Well, and shrink-wrapped. When we produced for the first time, really for the first two times, all of our mix-ins, our inclusions, when the pint was face-up, so to speak, all fell to the bottom. <laughs> and when it was down, everything fell to the top. So we either had people complaining, they opened the lid and said, oh my God, I got a pint, just a vanilla ice cream. There's nothing in it. And everything was at the bottom. Or maybe worse, they opened up a pint of bourbon mash and all the caramel got all over them. And they're like, I'm Covered in this stuff. So I had an investor say to us he's in the apparel manufacturing business and he has a thousand employees. And he said to me one day, he picked up a pint, a couple pints, had some problems, called me and said, I'm going on a plane to Asia. You know why? And he said, because I got a problem. And he goes, I got 997 effing people in this company that tell me I have a problem. And I have three who know how to fix it. And all three of them are here in Boston, unfortunately. So I got to get on a plane because I don't have anyone that can fix this. And he goes, you got to fix this problem. Find somebody to fix this problem because you can't be getting on a plane either to fix it. So go fix it. So that drove us hiring you know, our operations person. So that's what the team looks like. We're tiny. We're four. We're making two new hires, two or three new hires in the next six months in marketing, sales roles, merchandising roles in the field. But you know, investors going back to sort of your audience, you know, watching revenue per employee, watching headcount, you know, that's something we want to be really careful of. I kind of steal an expression from an old boss: the day I hire an HR department, I quit. So um, I have no no intentions of being that big.
0: How do you think about? Growth and resource allocation, right? There are some businesses where you say you want to build your team and your resources ahead of the revenue growth that will come, and others you want to get to the point where you're cash flow positive as quickly as you can. H- how have you laid out your road map? Well, there's a bunch of different theories right
1: now in consumer packaged goods. There's a theory that people are taking. So when we initially started, people were talking about margin and saying you have to be at X percent, 50 percent, 40 percent, 60 percent, whatever that number is. I know what that number is, but you have to be at X percent margin to to be able to compete effectively. There's a philosophy right now that's going on where people are taking 15, 12, maybe 18 percent margin to drive top line revenue. And it's just a very uh, can be a dangerous philosophy, but there's a lot of people that are doing that. There's companies that are grossing 150, 200 million dollars that aren't profitable and are selling at five x for a billion dollars. So there's uh, you know we do have a plan to exit this business. So it's that you know that's number one is what is our vision and our plan and how many years is that? From a resource allocation standpoint, you know we our number one thing is to brand build. As I was talking about power bars, to brand build and drive sell. So from an allocation standpoint, we have to put money into marketing. We have to put money into trade spending, making sure we're priced competitively. And we've had a couple little learnings there. So anything that drives sell through to build that effective selling story is where we have to put the money against. I think probably talking you and I, not having a microphone in front of us, I think the hard thing sometimes is how scrappy we should be. You know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs I know that sleep on, you know, friends' beds everywhere. And sometimes I feel like we're spending too much money, but we're, we're pretty good about the, the dollars that we spend we're very careful about things but we're also not you know I also don't want to be like wow we should have invested more I have some entrepreneurial friends even ones that have sold companies that say looking back they've sold companies for a lot of money they're like we wish we invested even more in marketing we would have been able to get a greater return so it's from an allocation standpoint number one obviously we have to make the product number two we have to We and it's really number one is we're all about sell through what's going to help us sell through things
0: so inevitably when you start this process and you you are in it this isn't like how we build this and we're looking back 20 years and you built this multi-billion dollar company hopefully you're in it now what were the most unexpected curveballs that came your way I'd probably say number
1: one is we have a competitor out there that is a low fat, high protein ice cream that is um, has changed the category dramatically. So super premium ice cream is is flat or down as a whole. Pints are doing really well. Private labels taking some hits, but a market trend, consumer trend, was something that we all missed a little bit, and it's having an impact. So it's sort of a quote unquote healthier ice cream. It's not but it's being positioned that way and no one people saw it but no one including myself saw how big it was going to be so I think we have some headwinds there I think as I mentioned before Curveball was making our product we didn't realize how hard it was to make our product initially But, you know, when I talk about going from 20 grocery stores a year ago to 3,000, you know, there's a lot of things that we've done right, too. So, we have an incredible product, incredible brand. We've got great distribution. We have a lot of people that really have a rooting interest for us. So, I think those things, I think those are probably the number one things if you wanted to find anything as a, you know, as a
0: curveball. And how are you spending your time now? You're running all over the place. You're You're at events doing all the all the challenges that come up all the all the mistakes that happen in the course of the business what what do your days look like
1: well it's funny to answer your question it's just a bit of a different way the biggest change in my work lifestyle is i'm never at a computer yesterday and today were like scheduled days to like do financial operations of um, contracts agreements I am either you know out at investors out at retail you know, media PR a lot of account visits on the road presenting to accounts because I have that sales function right now the biggest change in my lifestyle is that I am never at a desk and never never at a computer everything on the phone for that reason I am uh, notoriously and horribly hate email and the reason why I hate email is that I go home at night and I have a daughter and my wife and you know I have dinner with them uh, when I'm home and then I have to answer emails at 10, 11, 12 at night into the wee hours of the morning and it's just a reoccurring stream that comes back to me again. I evidently coming from the fancy food show, I'm smiling I saw some friends that were giving me a lot of grief and that's not the word I'd use about A, being very intense and B everyone in the industry knowing that I write emails at 2 or 3 in the morning Um, (laughs) so look, you don't have to answer from on my team. I tell people, I want your time Monday through Friday and that may be 11 and two in the morning and on weekends you're on your own for the most part unless you're working an event. But my time is split between, look, we're still a small company, we're still at the startup stage. As CEO, one of my main jobs is raise capital. The second is the sales function, driving revenue, and anything related to driving revenue. The third is that I think I'm a mile wide and in, maybe three inches deep in each functional area. So I have an operations meeting yesterday and want to understand what's going on with the inventory and forecast. I have a marketing meeting that follows right after this. I have a finance call that I have to be aware of. So I really move, move between a lot of disciplines. So when
0: you're as busy as you are fully in it, how do you make sure that the people on your team either get that message or feel like, they're moving in the right direction and don't get derailed by. Hey, Dan's just too busy. We can't ever get a hold of him.
1: That's a challenge. I'm sure they feel that way. Actually, you know, I have some mechanisms, which is uh, <laughs> something that's not always popular. It wasn't here, but it's really kind of simple. Which is, I ask everybody on a Thursday to do a project list and to break it into two pieces. It's the simplest template, and I don't even know if they follow it, but it is status update, which means update me on what's going on, and the second part is input needed. What am I holding up or anyone holding up that's a barrier from doing your job. And I asked them to do it for a couple of reasons at the end of the week. It was usually Friday, but I've asked, I just moved it back to Thursday. I asked them to do it number one for themselves. I want them to sit down and you ask about how do they know they're on track. I want them to come to that own conclusion that they're on track or off track by doing this weekly list of a, here's a status update and they can go back and look at it themselves. So it's sort of self policing if you want, if that's the right word. The second thing is where are they, who's, am I holding you back in any way? Cause I'll eliminate that hurdle if I'm your hurdle. The second thing that's big picture I think you'll find fascinating is I'm managing this like a 30 or 40, 50 million dollar company. We do an annual offsite that we did in December for next year's planning and then we religiously, religiously being a year and a half, two years, have a quarterly one day session to do check-ins on that annual offsite and where we're tracking. So we actually set up KPIs for the company. We have quarterly rocks if you've read anything about Rockefeller Habits or Stephen Covey or anything. But we have quarterly rocks on what are the five priorities that we have to do as a company for the quarter. And then we have what's called sort of WWW, which is not World Wide Web, but who is doing it, what, and when. So there's real accountabilities in the organization. And anytime we've missed uh, a meeting like this, it's been a big deal. So we have um, quarterly meetings that I actually need to follow up on our last quarterly meeting. But we have quarterly meetings to lay out the vision and the strategy and where people are taking things. And I don't think this is something any company does our size.
0: Yeah. And so what are the, those are some great management disciplines. I'm sure you've learned from being involved in real professionally managed organizations. What are the two or three things that you would like to have on your team in terms of management leadership? that aren't there yet.
1: There's this, uh, it's a very hot decision for us right now. I've been doing the sales role myself and something I think you'll find is interesting is that we've presented to approximately 17 accounts and we're 14 for 17 getting in. The only three are the ones I didn't go to. So I'm 14 for 14 presenting to accounts. Some accounts are going to listen out there and turn me down just to make me humble. But, um, (laughs) you know, so the sales function is how do I staff up and have like a mini me? How do I have somebody who can tell the vision almost as well? as I can, there's still a lot of value out there in people in what's called founders FaceTime. And that's not just vice cream. You know, you think about business and great brands. I know I'm a little bit of a different interview, but Jim Cook here in Boston from Sam Adams. I don't mean to pretend to, to position myself as any of these people, but everyone wants to meet Phil Knight from Nike. You know, Travis at Uber's had his own challenges lately. I don't know about that. But there's people in the consumer world. I can't speak to tech at all that people, you know, Justin Gold from Justin's has been incredible to me. People want to still meet the founder, even if it's not named after me, like Justin's. So there's some founders FaceTime. So how do you how do you bring salespeople on that can sell the vision almost as well as you can? That's something that's that's something I'm processing. I right think it's now. pretty
0: pervasive. I mean, I saw that in in my earlier years in our asset management business, where when you're the founders and presenting inevitably there's a higher hit rate than if you send somebody else but at some point in time you need to broaden it out because you can't be in all places especially the types of distribution that you're Uh, You've hit 14. Yeah. How many potential ones are there out there that you'd like to get to, right? and we're
1: going to more. But I I will tell you also in uh, full honesty and talk talk about my self-awareness is really good. Now, I may have issues and blind spots that I'm aware of and don't do anything about. That's a separate issue. But I know one thing is from a relationship standpoint, while the salesperson may not be able to sell as well as I can, they have better relationships at the buyer levels, and layers, than I do. So, you know, a lot of these people who are in the sales and broker role back many, many years with buyers and they go out to dinner with them and they may go on a hunting trip, they may go on a cruise with them. There's a lot of, you know, back slapping and I don't play any of that down or be self, you know, and look down on it all. It's a very valuable skill in that relationship building piece and I don't think it's um, necessarily my uh, greatest strength. I'm a good relationship person, but in that environment, um, I move pretty quickly and I think a lot of entrepreneurs have ADD and the idea of like sitting there and having a two hour dinner and talking about, you know, hunting or the cruise whatever drives me crazy. So, you know, there's people who are better at managing those relationships. I want to talk business when I go out, like a lot of other people. And some of these, some of the people, buyers and other people don't want to talk about business or, you know, how long can you talk about business at a table for? So I think there's a salesperson, people that I could bring on that are better at those relationships than me. How do you get feedback
0: when you're the leader of the organization?
1: It's a really good question. One, my wife has no trouble giving me feedback on, on the business. Not always constructive. Sometimes constructive. Sometimes constructive, and I like to hear it. I think number one, you get feedback from the consumer. I keep mentioning this as a theme. So if you're selling, you're getting feedback. If you're not selling, sometimes it's hard to identify what that feedback is. It could be something simple as awareness. It could be you know something we're new, and Ben and Jerry's is 40 years old. So number one, you get consumer feedback. The second thing, I mean, there's a big difference in feedback on me and feedback as a brand and as a company. I really believe again and keep saying it, about being at retail. I'm at stores as much as I possibly can be. Like my wife sends me out to go get milk and it takes me two hours and she knows it because I'm gonna hit four stores. I was on vacation in Charleston, South Carolina this weekend for July fourth, and I had to hit a Harris teeter and she knows it. She's like only one, you know. I tried to sneak in four, but I didn't have a car. <laughs> so so I like to be at retail, hearing from consumers, hearing feedback on social media. Um, I take it very personally. I respond to everybody, I respond to everybody on social media personally if I can uh, pretty much everybody and we just had a couple posts today that came up on Twitter that were the first ever that were sort of negative but everything's either positive or it's it's feedback which may not be positive but it it's comes from a place of being constructive or I didn't you know I think you could do this flavor better or the brand didn't appeal to me and we do a lot for the cancer community and I have a shirt that says vice cream cures cancer and there was a whole Twitter war that broke out saying it doesn't cure cancer but they donate money and I had cancer patients that weighed in and said I wish I I had this at the end of chemotherapy to come up to a pint of ice cream so i, I listen to consumers a lot i'm um, more than ever i will tell you one thing to kind of wrap up this question they don't miss anything so when we produced one day and our vanilla wasn't at the speck of our vanilla should be and we produced afternoon delight which is vanilla with uh, caramel chocolate sea salt truffles and cookie dough and our vanilla was flat and we said all right we'll dial up the inclusions no one will notice they noticed. I've gotten emails that say afternoons like this, vanilla is not strong enough. Consumers don't miss anything today, and that's okay. They didn't miss anything in the fifties or the sixties or the seventies either, but today they have outlets outlets to voice it, you know, on Instagram and on Facebook in particular and Twitter. So consumers give you the feedback, they don't miss anything and they share it. Dan, what do you think have
0: been the keys to your success <laughs> thus far with vice cream?
1: You know, one of the things I think is the brand voice. We talk about Vice Cream being unapologetic indulgence, but we do it and we're still learning the line there in this over-the-top way. So our... Ad campaign for last fall and coming back this September is Vice Cream Proud sponsor of the freshman 15. Like you're 18, <laughs> like you're 18 years old. Eat F and Ice Cream. We've done things where on 420, obviously, you know, 420 day, April 20th, legalized marijuana day, we actually took higher grounds, which is our nod to cannabis, and we actually made some pints into bongs, and you could actually smoke out of the pint. I had <laughs> whatever the president says, non-deniable the denial, whatever it is, I had nothing to do with this. People were like, like dude I can't believe I'm actually smoking a pint of ice cream and other people are like dude I can't believe I have coffee ice cream in my bong they didn't know what to make of it but we our, <laughs> our t-shirts say don't be such a vanilla even with our cancer efforts that we've done to help support cancer patients and their families we have t-shirts that say "Cremotherapy." so like with our cancer patients that we that we talk to and obviously they can identify to my story we don't go in there and say oh I'm so sorry with what's going on we go in there with the same kind of attitude and say let's just celebrate life so we're still learning we we have a huge uh, video that many of you, by the time this comes out, we're br- coming forward with a groundbreaking video and ad campaign that is unlike anything out there that really talks about our brand. For gosh sakes, we're a brand that has a flavor called the Raja Trois, which is vanilla ice cream with orange wrapped around three kinds of chocolate. So we try to say, as we say here, we take our business seriously and we take the brand seriously. We try not to take ourselves so seriously every day because we have to have fun with things.
0: So what, what is the next three to Six months look like our goal is to over
1: the next five years is to build you know a, a national brand that has significant you know revenue um, and is a major player out there to build be a third brand to Ben and Jerry's and and Haagen Dazs in the super premium space. Um, and we really believe that indulgence is is where things are going. The next three to six months, you know, we continue to focus on sell through number one, on opening up new markets number two, building out the team effectively and finding things in the right place but you know we still have you know it's still about awareness also you know i remember being at pepsi and finding out the you know key metric in consumer package because this household penetration and i think it was about 10 years ago the number may have been this low but i found out that gatorade had not awareness but in terms of numbers of consumers simply that have gatorade in their household was 12 percent Of America. And you're thinking Gatorade. This has been around 40 years. And like, you know, not that everyone's an athlete, but you find that some of these household penetration numbers are 3%, 4%. So my point is that our awareness right now, our distribution is less than 5% of America. And our awareness is probably less than that. So we still go out every day. And even in our hometown of Boston, we've been marketing for a year. We did the July 4th celebration this weekend in the Esplanade and heard from my team that was there. No one, hardly anyone heard of us. You know, I think it's good for them. it's good for them
0: to hear wow not everyone knows us because we all live in our own little worlds yeah well hopefully that the, the people who listen to this will learn a little bit now if they want to find you or learn more about the brand what's the best way to do that if you want to find us and learn about the
1: brand you can reach us at our website it's eat e-a-t vice cream v-i-c-e-c-r-e-a-m facebook's eat vice cream same for instagram if you want to find us there if you want to fund us my phone number is two zero no (laughs) that's a separate issue we'll be raising around another round of capital you know we'll be looking at something in early 18 but that's that's you can find us on an So follow us on our social media channels. Um, I think we do a really good job now.
0: Right. Well, I'm not going to let you go without asking a series of uh, customary closing questions. It'll be interesting to see if your answers in any way thematically differ from some of the other guests. So the first question, what is your favorite thing to do that is a complete waste of time?
1: Oh, well, fantasy, uh, like, you know, I'm a fantasy baseball addict with my league. Fantasy sports is probably a favorite thing that's a waste of time. All right. What was your favorite
0: sports moment? as a participant or a fan
1: Bucky Dent's home run Yankees home run against the Red Sox in 78 I'm
0: so glad you're telling that in Boston in Boston Boston, we're having this conversation Um,
1: as a participant maybe the Tufts University where I went to school Williams cross country meet way back when was the only race I won in four years of college and I had been out all night long the night before drinking and (laughs) hooking up with some girl and didn't sleep (laughs) My coach told me do whatever you did last night every week i said i only wish
0: yeah what phrase that your parents one of your parents repeated to you over and over again most stuck with you <laughs> I'll give you one for my mom that's topical
1: and one for my grandfather my mom said You really deserve a break. (laughs) Uh, Maybe this is our break, and uh, maybe this is my break of ice cream. Um, The second one is a good question. My grandfather said, even at Pepsi, when you come in every day to the office and you flip the lights on, treat it like your own office and your own company and treat their money like your own money and pretend you're running your own business. Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: What is your favorite book? I absolutely love
1: uh, Phil Knight's first book, the latest book, Shoe Dog, which is really his first book. I have 136 pairs of sneakers. I collect shoes. I am a diehard Nike guy. I've had a pleasure of meeting Mr. Knight. And uh, that book and the Nike story influences us here.
0: Yeah. What do you know now that you wish
1: you knew 10 years ago? Probably, uh, you know, as honest as I could be, it probably takes a village um, you know what I learned through both cancer and building this business is that it takes a village of doctors and nurses to keep me alive, and it takes um, a village of people that want to see Vice Cream succeed. Uh, in terms of introductions to someone who could do packaging or design for us, or in terms of a retailer that takes a chance on us, it takes a village. You can't, you know, you can't be the loneliness of a long distance runner. In your waning days, we are now. I beat done. cancer, buddy. Done. I know, really. And now we I'm waiting
0: again. Well, you're going to live a long time. You beat this thing. You'll beat it again if it comes up. But we're, you know, we're in our 90s. We're watching people run around the track because we're not really doing that anymore. What advice would you give yourself today?
1: I wish I could think of something witty here, uh, but uh, what advice will I give you today? Um, make sure you eat all the way to the bottom of the pint. <laughs>
0: That's a metaphor for both life and my current business. Dan, this has been awesome. Thanks for sharing your story. And uh, let's see if we can't get some ice cream sold.
1: Thanks very much, Ted, for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.